welcome to the Broom in the Tree podcast, where you get to listen to my conversations with renowned experts in all aspects of event management. My guests share with you their stories, their memories, their tips, tricks, and even some behind-the-scenes insights so that your next event, from a candlelit dinner to a wedding for thousands, creates beautiful memories. My name is Nikki Kennedy, and I get to help make people's dreams come true. Hi, let's have a look at all the aspects of risk management, health and safety, jock applications, EMT, and the latest item on the block, Poppy. With me, I have Errol Nina of Jinton Latuli, Exo Hall of Famer and risk consultant, as well as Mornay Veyers. Let's chat about the legal requirements and why it's absolutely necessary to leave gaps between the rows of tables and chairs and not to block off emergency doors. Yes, that's a legitimate question, which is always why we wonder why it's not adhered to. Firstly, welcome. Thank you. Good morning, Nikki. Thank you, Nikki. Good morning. Morning. Errol, tell us, what goes into the JOC application and what permits are required? Obviously, each event is different. The different activities that take place in that event are going to dictate whatever the legal requirements are. The main purpose of the JOC application is the safety and security plan, which consists of what are we doing in the interests of public safety and what are we doing in the interests of all attendees, including the contractors that are coming onto our event site. So the type of certificates that are going to be required are going to be your food certificate of acceptability. That's if, of course, there's catering, if there's gas, what size are the gas bottles, what certification is going to be required for the gas, if there are temporary structures, electrical certificates of compliance, engineers' certificates uh, for those structures, rigging, if there's going to be rigging involved, if there's a stage involved, rigging certification is going to be another certificate. Each municipality also has different rules regarding the sizes of stands that are going to be required as temporary structures for which an engineering certificate is required. If it's an outdoor event, then obviously one has to look at the possibility of are there going to be road closures? Or is that the kind of thing that is going to be detrimental to the public safety of people attending the event? Okay. So how critical and how different is putting a gala dinner certification versus an outdoor? I mean, are the logistics and applications all the same? If it's for a dinner, straight away we have venue restrictions. In other words, how large is the venue? How many people can go into the venue? There are fire regulations which dictate the distance between the tables, the distance for the waiters to walk between the backs of chairs, etc., etc. An outdoor event, one of the first things is we start from the outside and we say, well, where will people be parking their cars? We would like the event attendee to have a wonderful experience from the moment he parks his car to the moment he enters the event, enjoys the event and leaves the event and gets back to his car. So the planning is very, very different. And the types of, of certification required will also be different. So for the parking area, it may be that the fire department say, I want enough space to get a fire engine through the lines of the cars that you're having in your parking area. Now, this won't be the case when we're using an internal arcade, for example, in an existing venue. Yeah. And just a thing that I know that I often worry, not worry about, but... 
if I'm working on an event and as an event organizer, we have all the safety and security. We have the security guards in place. They've all been briefed. They've got the instructions. And yes, you have to go down this passage and you have to go this route. And sometimes you just want to short circuit and say to the guys, just let me through. And the clients argue and they say, well, the guests and they say, oh, but I just want to go there quickly. How do you circumvent it and say to the poor security guards, actually, guys, you've got to give a little bit of leeway. Where does it stop where you say, actually, security's in control, that's their briefing, or as the event manager or the client, you can just do a quick little sidestep and take it from there. How do you, as the risk management, solve that? Again, we're back to the planning. Nikki, rules are not meant to be broken. So if there's a an area that is out of bounds, it should remain out of bounds. To give security staff too much discretion, in many cases, amounts to let's not bother at all. Then yeah. we might as well just leave that entrance or access point or exit point unattended to begin with. When security has been briefed, Nikki, it, it's important that the briefing is accurate and that there are solid reasons which go into the briefing of that security officer. If we are saying nobody may go through the door, to give the security officer discretion is not helpful. Rules are not there to be broken. Rules are there to be adhered to, and staff have to have clear instructions as to when or when they may not use discretion. Cool, thank you. Okay, let's have another look at it. When you've got an event, is there a minimum quantity where you say, actually, you don't need to go with risk management? Do you work on 50 people? Do you work on 250? How would you determine whether it's the client to actually take the responsibility of saying, guys, we need to bring in the risk management. We need to do the applications. How do you determine when we do it? I'm going to ask Mornay to come in over here because he works closely with venues. Yeah, look, it all depends on, on the event and where the event is going to be hosted. If you've got a purpose-built venue, let's say auditorium for that houses 200 people, then obviously there's, there's no really need for, for a jock application because it's a purpose-built venue. Any other event that's happening where temporary structures go up, regardless of the amount of people, um, some of the municipalities actually work from between zero and 50 where you have to start, and they then classified as a small event. So all public events actually have to go through regardless of the amount of people that are attending that event. Okay, so then do the rules in each province, each community, are they the same? And let's talk around what happens if something goes wrong. Now you've gone with the venue security and risk management. Something really goes wrong what are our risks on that? You know, people could get hurt. Um, you know, you've got crime because you haven't got adequate security at the event. Um, so there is, yeah, there's a lot of contributing factors to the safety and security of that event. I think to add to that, the specifics are governed by the Safety at Sport and Recreation Events Act. So there are minimum criteria which would apply depending upon the number of attendees, all the way down to, for example, if you have a thousand attendees, how many security officers do you require? And it is legislated as to what the minimum number of security officers would be adequate or inadequate for a particular event. And of course, that would then also vary depending upon the layout of the venue. As we discussed earlier, perhaps it's an outdoor event requiring more security officers than you would need for an indoor event. Okay, so this obviously with the different securities, this brings us to all our EMTs and the different people that we need to bring in as well. How would you determine the type of safety you bring in? Do you bring in one ambulance? Is it uh, just somebody with a bit of medical history, background? What's, how do you work it? 
Currently, what's happening is that the cities and the city jocks are using um, the SARS-103-66 standard. It's an SAB standard for safety at live events, which has got a medical matrix in, um, included. Um, so that will, but will give you the minimum requirement uh, for, for the medics to be at an event for your type of event and the amount of people that are attending that event. It also includes, is it an outdoor event, indoor event? Is it summer? Is it winter, autumn? How long are the queuing at times for the people that are attending at this event? So all of those contribute to what the outcome of that matrix is. And that matrix then gets used by the cities as a minimum requirement for medics at that specific event. I know that obviously when we do a lot of functions, we have all the structures, the technical, the decor, lighting guys, and they use a lot of heavy machinery. And I know that some event managers do it, some venues do it. Do you have to have your EMTs there from beginning of set down to lockdown? What are the parameters you know, if something goes wrong, somebody's got to be responsible for it. So how do you say, okay, we actually need to have the EMTs there or we could actually just walk away and just have them for the function itself and not to set up and build and strike? This opens what I regard for the current event industry in South Africa as a huge can of worms in terms of who has these various responsibilities. In reality, what legislation says is that every employer is responsible for the safety of his employees. Where an event organiser has now appointed a principal contractor to be responsible for a build, where perhaps, as you say, there's machinery involved, the reality is it is not the event organiser who's responsible for the safety of that contractor's employees. It is the contractor himself who is responsible. I do know that at the moment many event organisers take this responsibility upon themselves including the expense of providing that EMT for the event, when in fact it is the responsibility of the principal contractor. And are the lines not then blurred a little bit? You know, I know for myself, I want to be in control. I want to know that I've got everything. I want to make sure that it's right. And if I'm relying on the principal contractor or the client or somebody else to do it, I can't be guaranteed that actually it's going to be done. And yes, it is a control factor. Nikki, again, you're bringing up a very interesting point. To be in control of that type of event happening or not happening, one has to have a contractual arrangement with those contractors. It's unfortunate, but at the moment, many organisers don't even appoint these contractors in writing. And the terms of the appointment are very, very clear in the Occupational Health and Safety Act. Contractors must be appointed in writing. And the description of what they're contractually bound to provide has to be in accordance with the Health and Safety Act. And these provisions should be spelt out in that appointment. And it is clearly not the duty of an event organiser to look after a contractor's employees. That is the principal contractor's responsibility. And you cover that within your contractual agreement and your Section 37.2 agreement, which is the Health and Safety Agreement, where everyone agrees to comply with the provisions of the Health and Safety Act. So in a way, the Health and Safety Act provides an indemnity to you as an organiser, only if though you've complied with the Act and actually done your indemnity agreements with your contractors. You know, I think the industry's obviously worked in, not in strange ways forever, but I don't know if, it's, if we're working backwards. We all employ our... our suppliers, we bring them in, then we bring in the health and safety, then we have our meeting. So 
is that then too late to bring in the indemnities and everything like that? Because surely that should have been done prior to. Absolutely. You're 110% correct. The, the problem is the world has become a specialist place. So event organisers specialise in what it is they do in putting on an event, making sure the ambiances are correct, making sure that the financial risk assessment is done so that the event is going to be profitable, doing their best to ensure there's no reputational harm. But if that same event organiser had a risk consultant right up front to say, what is it I must do in the appointment of a contractor? Then this problem would disappear. But by the time we get to the health and safety subject, it's too late. The contractor's already on site. Now we bring a health and safety officer on. To do what? To supervise the contractor? Again, there's no foundation in law for the event organiser to do this. Construction Regulation 5 is very, very clear. It spells out the duties of the client. So the event organiser becomes the client. And as such, they appoint a contractor. Then we move to Construction Regulation 7, which is the duties of the principal contractor. And whatever the event organiser does as the client is mirrored and answered by the principal contractor. So my opinion, event organisers take on a lot of unnecessary expense, unnecessarily, because they should not be doing this. It is not an event organiser's role or expense or prerogative to provide health and safety for the contractor's build. It is the principal contractor's responsibility in terms of the act. Okay, but then now the principal contractor then brings in security or the EMTs. Surely then the lines are blurred as, well, I've brought them in, whereas if the event manager brings it in, it's an overall thing. But that just brings me to the next thing when you say it shouldn't be the event manager's expense. What are we looking at, and not to put you on a a block, budget-wise, how would we determine what to factor in to bring in health and safety risk to make sure that we've got the right certification? There's obviously a cost to bring in the, the risk management team, but then we've also got costs for city council, for the fire department, for all of those. What should a person sort of factor in to say to the client, in order to start, let's say we've got to go in for, let's, Five, ten, fifteen, thirty thousand before we even look at it. Could that not blow the budget? Well, I think there's a new norm, and exactly as you say, budgets are now very, very important. So, what an event organizer should be doing is figuring out upfront, within that initial planning, when the event is still being designed, uh, and 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 at the conception stage, how will it work? What needs to be in writing? What contracts need to be entered into? Whose cost? is an activity going to be for? Is it for the event organiser or is it for the principal contractor? And what does the law say? I mean, the reality of the situation is an event organiser appoints what is strange, but let's call it the event safety officer. But in law, that safety officer doesn't have the legal right to now go and demand of that principal contractor what it is he should be doing during his build. That is the contractor's responsibility in terms of the act. And it is very, very clearly spelled out in terms of Construction Regulation 5 and Construction Regulation 7. You see, before the event organiser even starts, the law compels them to do a baseline risk assessment. 
for any temporary construction work that is going to be undertaken. Do event organizers do this? Sadly, not in every case. <laughs> I do know that. But if an event organizer did that, the process of that baseline risk assessment for the builds to happen during that event will in itself provide all the answers and the budget answers as to what must happen. So it should be clear between the event organizer and the principal contractor before they even begin as to what the contractual arrangements are. You see, what the event organizer really needs is just a health and safety manager to ensure and follow up that those things that have to be in place by the principal contractor are in fact in place. So if an event organizer, and very few, if any, have a background in health and safety when it comes to the law, it is a lot cheaper to employ a qualified health and safety manager stroke risk consultant than it is to try and do the work yourself. Okay, so now we have a little curveball. It's just a little thing called COVID-19. And I'm sure that it has affected the health and safety and risk management. Talk us through, because it is a it's a very real thing that it has changed the world and the way that we see and do events. How is it going to affect what we've been talking about now? You see, I think the first impact that COVID-19 is going to have is, again, back to budget and expense. Who is going to pay for the hand sanitizer? Who is now going to pay for the legislatively required health and safety COVID-19 manager that has to now be on site? It is going to be the event organiser. But if you go back to the venue, the financial risks are now enormous. So previously, where we would have expected to seat 10 persons at a round table of 10 at a function at which food is going to be served, we can no longer do that. We might get five, but if we do the measurements, we actually are only going to get four persons. So everything changes. I think the first element of risk assessment will now be financial risk assessment for events going forward. And I think the new norm is going to be a combination of live event and hybrid event. I think you're going to have live attendees, for example, at a, at a convex or a small exhibition, and you're going to have other attendees attending that same event virtually uh, from the comfort of their homes or their offices. I already have one client is planning to do events where there will be free attendance by many members of the public. However, if you wanted to collect CPD points, for example, in, in attending an event, then you have to pay an entrance fee. So it depends on the type of exhibition, the type of event, as to whether there will be a charge or a cost. And it depends on, on the, the amount that's going to be charged to the so-called exhibitor and whether he's exhibiting virtually or in reality. And the same would apply to conference delegates. Instead of crying in our tea, I think we must say, well, what a great big advantage. I can now get international delegates to my conference and there's no travel and accommodation because whether they're in Europe or the United States or Australia or anywhere else in the world, they can attend my conference. So we're going to have to rethink how we do events. Okay. It always makes me worry and makes me think about it then, public liability. And I know that obviously with and without COVID, we've always had the issue and where does the buck stop? Who is responsible for public liability? Legislatively, this has now been dealt with. If one looks at the Safety at Sport and Recreation Events Act, the requirement to enforce 
public liability is now embedded in that act. And so it is the event organizer's responsibility to ensure that the necessary public liability for a suitable amount of money and don't ask me what a suitable amount of money is because <laughs> it's like asking me how long is a piece of string. It depends on the nature of the event, uh, the hours of the event, the type of event, the number of attendees, where it's happening. Most insurers start at $5 million and the next level up is $10 million yeah. and so on and so forth. It's, it's not expensive to buy, um, but it should actually be in place and it's now a legal obligation for the event organiser to have public liability for the event. Look, I know for myself that I always had the public liability, but it probably took the first 10, 15 years of my career before the insurance would actually or could understand what events was about. You know, they, they lumped us just into this little pot and said, okay, yeah, well, we'll just give you a bit of liability. And then they started, I think, when events became a real thing. You know, anybody used to just throw a party, well, then I can be an event manager. And with the risk and all of that, the insurers then started to put together a proper event management public liability sector. So I think that has helped us cover all our aspects on it. But it is real. You know, at the end of the day, I think if a function goes wrong, I, as the event manager, am liable. That is correct, Nikki. And, and I must say that the existing legislation has helped not only the event organiser but also the insurance companies because the legislation covers most of the bases when it comes to is this event being properly planned? Have proper risk assessments been undertaken? Is medical in place? Uh, we have a duty to the public and that duty of care is now embedded in legislation. And so the insurance company now also has a yardstick by which to measure whether in fact all the pre-planning and all the mitigating factors have been taken into account for a particular event when issuing a policy. Right, and then just chatting when you say everything's in place, there's a lot of things that we haven't even discussed. You know, there's crowd control, there's event fencing, there's waste management, all the things that we, we don't think about. It just sort of, it's got to happen, you know, somebody's going to clean up after me. Who's responsible for bringing in the waste management teams? Do you need to bring it in? Does it become the city of Joburg, Ekuruleni, or any of the provinces? Where do we work this into the system? Well, Nikki, the buck is always going to stop with the event organiser because the cities take the view, you're the one causing the problem, therefore you can be the one to pay for the cleanup of that problem. In terms of who decides and for the event organiser to arrive at a decision, it goes back to what we discussed earlier. That initial baseline risk assessment or the risk assessment for the event will actually highlight all these activities that are taking place and what are the risks and what needs to be done. So with a little bit of foresight and a little bit of risk emphasis in the planning, the answers to all of these questions will soon be made available to any event organiser. The problem is event organisers are so busy with their idea and... <laughs> The, the routines of putting on the event, they often lose sight of the fact that we never paid attention to the risk. We're just interested in getting to the other side of the road. We forgot to look left, right, and left again, and we shouldn't be surprised then when the car hits us as we're busy crossing the road. And that's what happens to event organizers who don't plan. 
and don't do risk assessments. Well, it makes me think many years ago, it was not an event I did, however, it was an event that I had attended. You know, it's something we don't think about, or like portaloos. What do you need to do? How many toilets do you have to have at your function? Do you have a trailer? Do you order the right thing? You know, if you've got a VIP function, you actually don't want a pocket rocket to arrive at your function. You know, those are for construction sites, unfortunately. There was this function at a really exclusive shopping center. And it was, again, many years ago before these designer toilet trailers came out. And the event manager brought these up with, on the well, not them, but the supplier brought them up, lying down on the bucky up to the roof of the shopping center. And it was great. Three-day events. They had their janitors there. They did what they needed to do. However, nobody had factored in that you cannot lie full toilets down. So these loos got loaded onto the bucky, brought down the, the ramp, and all hell broke loose. It was an unpleasant experience. Who's responsible? Who pays for the cleanup? What do we do? Morning. Now, Nikki, again, it's, it's the events organizer's responsibility. Under the public health bylaw, let's say you've got an outdoor event in an outdoor space where there are no ablution facilities, and you've got more than 30 people that's going to be there longer than an hour. There's actually a table that dictates what, how many closets, toilets, etc. you have to have for the amount of people that are at that open space. This is basically for outdoor events. Indoor events, purpose-built venues, they've got adequate toilets to service the people that attend that event. Uh, so it's basically with your outdoor events where you have to then bring in those additionals. And even then also, you know, the type of, you know, that's going to be the organizer's decision. You don't want artists that you're paying a couple of grand for to come to your event to put them in those little, you know, you need the proper VIP toilets. Uh, but for the general public, yes, you can have this normal port to lose for them. Yeah, and I mean, also you've got to be aware, I think, you do an outdoor event, the trailers are brought out, not a problem, they can go on an incline, suddenly the trailer starts moving, you know, there's a lot of risks and it really should be such a simple thing. But I think for me, it is probably one of the biggest factors that you have to be concerned about. Two more things that are really top of mind. What can make your event be shut down? Who can shut down your event? What are the ramifications on that? Nikki, I spoke earlier about, you asked the question, why do we have to do a jock application? And I responded by saying, well, part and parcel of that application is the submission of your safety and security plan. So it stands then to reason that non-compliance or non-adherence to your own plan is going to give rise to some other department or authority saying, sorry, your event can't happen. So if your event, for example, was going to be a concert and there was a stage built and now there was no sign-off from a, a certified engineer on the stage, well, the fire department are going to say, Sorry, no access to the stage. So that would be exactly the same as having the event shut down. Or if in your planning for the event you said for an outside concert, as another example, you are going to have 30,000 packs inside the venue because that's according to the floor space available. That's what the fire department agreed to and it's what you wanted in the venue. But then you know what happens in real life? Somebody decides to go into the car park and they start selling more tickets out the boot of a motor car. So now what we have is instead of the expected 30,000, it's starting to look like 40 or 45,000. Well, between the South African Police Service, who have authorized this event in terms of the SASRIA Act, which we spoke about earlier, and the Fire Department, they would have the rights to stop that event. So any unsafe condition, anything that is going to present 
potential harm to an attendee or member of the public would be reason enough to stop the event or to stop further access to the event and the authorities then have to step in and deal with that particular problem. There may be lots of other reasons. There may be a fire. Uh, There may be a bomb threat. There may be many, many things that could happen that would give rise to the closure of an event. Okay, so look, I think that's really a lot of food for thought for now. I just want to end on a very short note, and I want to just ask you to give us a brief summary on Poppy. I know that I think it deserves a whole podcast on its own, and we'd love to get into that, but just it is coming into effect our life. We are all going to be responsible. Tell us a little bit about us, and then we'll take it from there and delve deeper much further on. Yeah, sure. Nikki, our company actually has developed its own specialist poppy uh, set of documentation. It's a do-it-yourself set of documentation. But this act was, was first gazetted in 2016. It was signed into law by the state president on the 1st of July 2020 for every business, whether you're a one-man business or an event organizer or, or an industry or a factory, to become poppy compliant within a 12-month period. So D-Day is the last business day of June in 2021. And what it means is that we have to have policies and rules and regulations that govern our business in terms of what we do with personal information and data. So for a conference organizer, what are they doing with the data of the delegates? Made worse by the fact that if it's an international conference, we, even though we are here in South Africa, we fall subject to the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulations of the EU. And this governs what we do with EU residents or EU citizens' data. And people are very sensitive today all over the world about ID theft. And we're not allowed anymore to just keep data and send out emails and try and sell stuff. Uh, people have the right to complain. And I think as far as policing of the personal protection of information is concerned, I think the general public are going to be the biggest policemen of them all because I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm already very reluctant to part with my ID number and I don't want people willy-nilly out there having all my details. So that's the purpose of the, of the Protection of Personal Information Act. A regulator has been appointed and that will impact the event industry enormously because we have both our clients' data, be their companies or individuals, and we tend to keep that data on file. Well, we're going to need their consent to do that in the future. Okay, so look, definitely I think we have got way too much information to follow on that one. So I'd love to be able to chat to you further about that one. But in the meantime, let's actually just give out your details that if anybody wants to touch base with you just about risk management or find out anything about Poppy. You can contact us at Errol, E-R-R-O-L, at Jinton Lutuli, L-U-T-H-U-L-I, one word, dot C-O dot Z-A, or you can call me on 082-852-5113 or visit our website, www.jintonlatuli.coza. Excellent. Well, Mone and Errol, thanks a million for chatting to me. And like I say, we will be touching base again soon and hopefully we can all become popular compliant. <laughs> thanks very much for having us, Nikki. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you. Bye, guys.
My name is Nikki Kennedy, and I get to help make people's dreams come true. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.